0: Welcome to the show. I'm so glad you're here. I'm Braxton Hunter, and this is Trinity Radio. I want to welcome all Trinitarians, skeptics, and everyone else. This show exists because we love atheists, but we also love you whoever you are and want you to come to the Lord Jesus Christ. Today, we're going to be taking a look at a debate between Matt Dillahunty, Tom Jump, Randall Rouser, and Samuel Nassan as they discuss in a two-on-two debate um, an interesting topic, a question that is hard to pin down. You'll see what I mean as we get into the meat of the show. But let's go ahead and begin talking about this. So um, I know that some of you uh, prefer when I do these debate reviews, and this is gonna be probably Maybe I'm wrong. You already know, but this may be the lengthiest debate review I do. I have ever done. I have something like 27 clips lined up. We'll see if I get through all of them. But every last clip is chock full of good stuff for us to sink our teeth into and discuss. And um, it's an interesting debate. I really liked this one. And the reason I liked it was because... It it was action packed. There was a, there was a lot there for entertainment value. That's certainly true. But on top of that, there was also some good. Uh, it, it was a little bit different. The approach that. Uh, Randall and Samuel took in uh, presenting the Christian perspective was not what you typically get, which is what I think Matt and Tom thought was going to was going to be brought, which is you know the the uh, you know the arguments like the Kalam cosmological argument, the design arguments, a contingency argument, um, resurrection case, you know these kind of things, which is not actually what they did. Uh, we'll see specifically what they did. We'll, you'll get a hint of it as we move forward. I'll play a little. Uh, Couple of clips from them. But basically, what Rouser was, and if I get this wrong, Randall or Samuel, I'm sorry about that. But as best I could figure out, what they were trying to do was they were interpreting the debate to be uh, something like, is it rational to believe that Christianity is true? Whereas Matt and Tom took the topic of the debate to be something like, are there good reasons to believe? Uh, that God exists or that Christianity is true or something like that. And by that, they further seem to have understood it to mean, are there good evidences? Are there evidences we can talk about? Which would have been, like the typical arguments that apologists would bring things like the 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 argue, you know the theistic arguments like the design argument the moral argument things like that um so let's just go ahead and jump into a few comments on this now these are pulled from different parts of the debate i think but i wanted to pull this to make the point because i think it'll help us understand what's happening in this as we move forward so let's hear what matt understood the topic of the debate to be
1: i have a friend who refuses to debate a version of this topic uh, he won't debate is belief in god rational that's not what this topic was today despite the fact that we heard that many many times talking about rational talking about reasonable the subject of this debate was is there sufficient reasons to believe in god and and that that presumes reasonableness and that we are going to be presented with specific reasons
0: so Matt understood it to be uh, that we're going to be presented with specific reasons and whether this is reasonable. Now, when you say reasonableness, you're kind of in the realm of, um, is it rational to believe in God? Because um, rationality is uh, related to reason, and reason is the process by which you um, d- pour over the evidence that you have and decide on what you should believe, right? Um, what, but what did uh, what did Randall and Samuel think was the topic of the debate?
2: What uh, we, when when the topic of debate uh, was sent out by email? Uh, that is, uh, is there sufficient reasons to believe in God? Randall sent out an a, a email to uh, James, confirming and saying that does doesn't mean that you know it's rational. Belief in God is rational, uh, and I, and I believe that James replied in all caps: "Yes, you are right." I think that that was uh, so that Randall was right in the assumption, and we worked. We framed the debate based on that and based on what James said. Uh,
0: so um, Randall and Nassan were taking the topic of the debate to be uh, something related to the question of whether it is rational to believe. Not necessarily, are there good reasons? Which are slightly different. You know, these are somewhat different uh, ways of approaching it. So I'm looking right now in my phone because I actually uh, got a message from Samuel. He, uh, I, I guess he, he saw several. He said he saw several of my. Video responses to debates that Matt had done, and so he was he was hoping that I would be doing one in response to this one. And I actually said, "Yeah, today I've just been pulling clips because I do plan to do a response video." And he said, "Well, I just wanted to make it clear to you that um, that what I said in the in the debate is is actually the case, you know." And so he he gave me he he provided me with evidence. He provided me with reasons to believe. I'll say that uh, what was asked. Is exactly that. Are there sufficient reasons to believe in God? Um, so the, the question is, just to clarify, I interpret that question as: Are there sufficient reasons to believe in God rationally, such that the question constitutes a disagreement about the possibility that theism can be a rational belief? Please correct me if I'm wrong. And of course, the the, the you know the answer was yeah, that's right. This, this is what he got back. Now, um, perhaps that was you know at some point in the debate, Matt says maybe you're working off of old notes. Perhaps those were old notes and perhaps there was a further discussion, but Samuel is strongly giving me the impression that that was supposed to be the topic of the debate. So this isn't necessarily supposed to be the type of the debate in the minds of Randall and Samuel, after trying to get clarification on this, about whether we're supposed to present evidences and arguments so that you can then say that these are the reasons that a person would be rational to believe in that sense, but rather, is it rational to believe? And that is a little bit different. And so as a result, what we saw Randall doing in the debate was arguing for when you're rational to believe something. And then what Samuel did was he brought an argument, he did bring an argument. He brought an argument from religious experience. But the target is not to prove that God exists in some big slam dunk sort of an argument. Rather, instead, it is to show that there are good reasons such that a person would be rational to believe in God. And those are important things to keep in mind, I think, as we approach this issue. So, Keeping all of that in mind, Randall brought uh, an explanation of when he thinks it, was, it would be rational to believe something. And Samuel followed that by giving an argument. It's a, it's kind of like Swinburne's argument from religious experience, which is um, to show that it, it, you can be rational in believing in God. So um, let's, let's go ahead and hear what Randall has to say.
3: Six. The restaurant is six blocks west. Now, number six is an example of a belief that would be formed, in this case, by way of testimony. Under the right circumstances, when another human being testifies to the truth of a proposition, then if you have no reason to distrust that human being as a witness, if they seem to be a credible witness, if there's no undercutting or rebutting defeaters, in other words, no reasons to reject their witness, then you are justified in accepting it and forming your belief based on it.
0: Okay, so what Randall is saying is, look, if someone tells you that something is true um, and that you don't have any undercutting defeater for that—now, this is going to come up as a key element in the debate, um, and it seems like a reasonable thing to believe— um, you don't have any reason to believe that it's false prima facie, then you're rational to accept this and to believe this. Now, this comes after Randall has given d- various ways in which we form beliefs and and how they can be rational. But in, but I thought this was a great one because it gets capitalized on by specifically Matt, but both Matt and Tom as the debate moves forward. And so I, you know, th- this this hints at I want to say one of the key distinctions between skepticism and um. You know what most people do now. When when I say what most people do, let me say it this way. And people may laugh at this when I say this, but I'm a skeptic about a lot of things. I, I, I I'm a big time second guesser. Mike Lycona says this about himself, and and I think I'm the same way. I, I'm I, it, it, I, I have a hard time taking things at face value, and so there's skepticism that we we don't want to be gullible, and so that's skepticism with let's say a lowercase s. But then skepticism with a capital S as uh, a, a way of forming an epistemology entails all kinds of things. And here's one of the problems I see with skepticism. And uh, J.P. Moreland puts this beautifully, I think, and, um, and and has done so many times. But let's, let's think about it this way. So the, the goal of the skeptic, as Matt has said many times, it's, he said he has a T-shirt that says this, is I want to believe as many true things and as few false things as I possibly can. Okay, fair enough. I think that's a great way of going about this. I think that's a good goal. So how are you going to get there? Well, I'm going to get there by skepticism. Well, what 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 do you mean? Well, um, I, I'm going to disbelieve until these particular elements are met in my uh, epistemology, and for Matt, that's a demonstration. Now, for some things, what that demonstration entails is pretty obvious. With other things, it's not that difficult. It's not. I mean, it's not that clear. So, in fact, it's not even that clear to Matt, which is why he has said many, many times and I've hammered on this many, many times, he would say, I don't even know what the demonstration would look like to show me that a God exists or that the supernatural is true, such that, as I've said so many times now, I'm tired of hearing myself say it, that he said in a, in a debate with Matt Slick from 2014 or 15, he said that um, if Matt asked him if a, if a person parted in an ocean in Jesus' name, would you believe um, then? And Matt said, no. Mike Icona asked him if someone cut off Uh, my head Mike's head there in the debate and uh, an hour later it was reattached without human involvement and I began to tell you about a conversation I'd have with someone who you don't who you know a conversation you had with them when they were alive but they're dead now and I'm and how could I know that would you then at least believe that something supernatural had happened and I don't remember exactly how he said it but the basic answer was not really and uh, what if what if an asteroid collided with the moon and it said in Greek and Hebrew that God exists would you believe then that something supernatural had happened no so so here's so these are all um, I've hammered on a lot. The demonstration is difficult to get to for what that would look like with, with certain things. Sorry, I forgot to turn my phone off here. But the bottom line is uh, what we what, what he wants to say is um, what Randall wants to the skeptical approach would be to say, sorry, I lost my train of thought there for a second. The skeptical train of thought would be to say something like, well, let's do this. Let's test the skeptical approach. And here's how we're going to test it. The skeptic wants to lean toward disbelief right? Until certain things have been met. Um, someone who is not a skeptic wants perhaps to lean toward belief uh, until there's some undercutting defeater, right? So let's put those things to their logical extremes because have you ever wondered why it is that Adolf Hitler comes up, comes up so often in, in discussions as hypotheticals? It's because we test these things at the fringes. Well, without Adolf Hitler, we can test this at the fringes right now. We could say something like, all right, let's imagine that... Um, a person could possibly disbelieve every single thing that anyone ever told them throughout their entire lives, okay? If someone could be that kind of a, maybe skeptic isn't even the right word, but they just disbelieved everything. Okay, they would end up, remember the goal is believe as many true things and as few false things as you can. The person would end up disbelieving all of the false things, high five. But they would end up also disbelieving all of the true things. Well, that's not what you want. So let's go the other way. Let's say a person believed everything they were told throughout the entirety of their lives. They would have exactly the inverse problem. They would believe all of the true things, but they would also believe a lot of the false things, which is also not what we want, right? Well, how are we going to thread this needle? How are we going to get this balance? How are we going to how are we going to figure that out? Well, it seems like that we should we should try to strike some sort of a balance. Um, in the middle, but 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 it's not the case that we should necessarily lean toward disbelief, um, and definitely not lean toward disbelief to the degree that I think Matt does. Why? Here's why: the underlying proposition there is that perhaps it's dangerous or in some way undesirable to believe certain false things. So it's so if you're going to err, perhaps you should err toward skepticism because you don't want to end up believing things that are that are not true. Okay. Well. The problem is that it is just as dangerous and just as undesirable to end up not believing certain true things. In other words, leaning towards skepticism is just as dangerous. Let's say this, leaning too far towards skepticism such that you have that capital S sort of skepticism is just as dangerous as leaning too far toward gullibility. So we want to thread that needle and that's where the discussion lies. But I really think that uh, this points out a key difference in the two approaches and shows why that skepticism should not be the prevailing force in your epistemology. And I think that's an important thing to point out. So, but what Rausser is saying is that if someone who you have no reason to believe is lying to you, is telling you something. They seem like a reasonable person. You have no undercutting defeater to show that they're wrong. So for example, if you had a generally honest person, but they told you they were married bachelors in the next room, well, okay, you have an undercutting defeater for that. There, there is no such thing as a, as a married bachelor. Um, if you had someone that told you that, uh, you know, Donald Trump was in the next room, okay. There are other probability issues there. Um, perhaps you saw Donald Trump on the news that morning and he was in a different state. It's not impossible that he's in the next room, but it's highly unlikely. So we have those things that we can bring to bear. But if a person, um, seems to be somewhat, you know, reasonable and, and isn't, doesn't, there's no, you can't think of any motivation. They're trying to deceive you. And they tell you something like there's a restaurant six blocks down, Well, then you're reasonable, you're you're rational, that's a rational thing to believe. So you're rational to believe that the restaurant is six blocks down. That's what he's trying to say, unless you have an undercutting defeater, that that's a reasonable thing, a rational thing to accept. All right, so that's an important thing. So that's what Randall is saying, and he says a lot more than that, so I'm sorry, Randall, I'm kind of cutting this short. But basically, as I understand it, that's what he's trying to do. All right, well, what does Nissan? what does Samuel Nissan say about this? Um, Samuel Nissan brings this argument from, um, uh, well, this argument from religious experience that's talking about the fact that the majority of the people that have ever lived on planet Earth believe in some sort of God or gods, believe in the supernatural. And again, I may be getting your argument wrong a little bit, Samuel. But so, so if, if uh, you know, one way that I've seen this framed is if you had 99 people in a village all claiming to have had to know, to have had experiences of person Q. And you have one person in the village who says, I don't believe that. I've never had an experience of person Q. You, you would be rational to believe the 99 who say that they have had experiences with person Q and therefore believe that person Q exists. Or to appropriate it to this case where Matt and Tom both say that they, they know what religious people mean when they say that they've had religious experiences of God and they, they just think that those experiences can be interpreted differently. So now we would have something like 99 people in a village who claim to have had experiences Experiences with person Q and are very confident about that. Um, you would versus one person who says, I know what they're talking about. And I d- don't think that that experience is really an experience of person Q. You would still be rational to believe the 99 who believe in person Q and claim to have had incredible experiences and in communication with person Q over the one person who may well have been confused about something. Okay. So, so that, that's a, that's a typical sort of, um, argument from religious experience. I don't think that Samuel phrased it that way, and so you'd be best to go back and listen to what he actually, exactly, how he said it. Um, and then, of course, we have the experiences that we ourselves have as the person trying to make the decision about what's rational to believe. And so, one of the things that uh, Samuel brings out is what's called the principle of credulity. Now, uh, the principle of credulity says something like, if we have, uh, if if something seems a certain way to us. Very, very strongly. In fact, I'm going to say if if it seems impossible, if it seems impossible to deny. Now, we're not saying it's definitely true, but it seems so strong, perhaps because of intuition or whatever else. It seems so strong that it seems almost possible, to, impossible to deny. Then a person is rational in believing that thing until there's that undercutting defeater that Randall was talking about, something else that shows that it's false. This brings us to an interesting moment. Let, let's go ahead and hear what Nissan has. To to say.
2: Premise two, it is reasonable to believe these religious experiences unless we have evidences that they are mistaken. Now, this premise is based on two principles of rationality. The first is called the principle of credulity.
0: Yeah, so the principle of credulity. So now, it's interesting because I actually took that principle of credulity out of the context of um, re- the religious experience argument and actually appropriated it in my debate with Matt to libertarian freedom. I have this sense you could do it with morality, too. You have this sense that libertarian freedom is real. Most people do. Most of the people in the world believe they have libertarian freedom. Obviously, uh, that doesn't mean that it's true. I understand that. I'm not giving an argument ad populum there. But it's still an interesting piece of data to throw into this cumulative case and consider it. Um, you could do the same thing with morality. Uh, it seems impossible to deny that there is this objective morality, right? But let's just take libertarian freedom. So if you have something that seems impossible to deny, to deny, you're reasonable to conclude that it's true until someone gives you some undercutting defeater. I raised this in the debate. And of course, Matt Dillahunty said that it was a fallacy to do that. He, I think he said something similar to that in this debate. Well, interestingly, after the debate uh, was over, someone who was uh, who had seen the debate, who I don't even know, I think I know them now, but I think it's Mar- uh, Pastor Marcus, who's become a friend of mine, but um, uh, b- but I didn't know them at the time, took th- some clips from the debate and showed an inconsistency on Matt's part. So let's go ahead and take a look at that now. Okay, well, I do think that if you do seem to have a- an inconsistency an- a belief about something that seems almost impossible to doubt, then you are uh, justified in affirming that and believing that until someone gives you good reason to believe that that is not the case. Ooh. So I do
1: think that's true. This notion that you should believe something until somebody changed your mind is actually a fallacy. Now, I, I happen to be fairly convinced that I live in the real world and that I share experiences with other people, but that's mostly because I don't think that my brain has written every wonderful song or been every obnoxious caller to the show. So I'm fine with the notion that I share space with other people uh, until somebody shows me differently. This notion that you should believe something until somebody changes your mind is actually a fallacy. So I'm fine with the notion that I share space with other people uh, until somebody shows me differently.
0: Yeah. So I think you see there a little bit of an inconsistency. Now, perhaps you would give some sort of special pleading about why in an axiomatic sort of a situation like that, it's it's okay to do that um, or something. But but the reality is uh, we take these things to be like that. We it seems impossible to doubt um, that we've had these religious experiences of God or of the supernatural um, or that morality is objective or something like that. And so we we have this principle of credulity. Until there's an undercutting defeater for that, we're rational to believe it. I think that's an actually a, a pretty powerful thing, and it looks like Matt thinks it's a powerful thing. Otherwise, he's going to have to explain why it is he can say that about his own experience um, in the debate. So we see a little bit of, I think, talking out of both sides of your mouth. Now, I don't think that Matt realized that, that's why we need to point these things out. All right, so let's go to Tom Jump now. He's the one we haven't heard from yet. Um, what does he say, say to this uh, issue? Uh, and we'll get to Matt, too, here in just a minute. I guess we haven't done him. Let's start with Tom Jump, and let's hear what he has to say about this topic. Now, remember, um, and it becomes very, very clear here, uh, Nissan Samuel Nissan and Randall Rouser think that the topic of the debate, and they try to get confirmation about this and think that they did, was um, is it rational to believe in God? something tantamount to that? Whereas Tom and Matt think that the topic of the debate is are there reasons to believe um, in God or something like that? Which means that Tom and Matt are kind of looking for evidences and arguments and those sorts of things, which means Tom is going to attack those kinds of things. And so we're about to see a string of clips here where that's exactly what Tom is attacking. Let's begin with his assessment of apologist arguments.
4: Pretty much all apologist arguments are gods of the gaps, which I define as a kind of argument from incredulity, meaning I cannot imagine X could do Y, therefore X can't do Y, or I can imagine X can do Y, therefore X did Y. For example, I can't imagine how Y could be explained naturally, therefore God. If you break this down to its uh, component parts, it's I can't imagine how Y could be explained naturally, I can imagine how Y could be explained by a God, therefore God did Y. Now, obviously, the fact that you cannot imagine something is is not evidence it cannot occur. And the fact that you can imagine something isn't evidence it did occur.
0: Okay, so he has characterized all arguments that Christian apologists give, or at least most of them, I guess, to be fair, give them a little latitude, as um, I can't imagine how naturalism could explain this. I can I can't imagine how a God would explain this, and therefore God did it, basically, is, is what he's saying there. Well, actually, um, what what we do in most of these arguments, now we do have deductive, inductive arguments, abductive arguments. We have all kinds of arguments and approaches to this, but um, but what we're doing in most of these cases is what's called inference to the best explanation, which is an abductive form of reasoning. Even in deductive arguments, oftentimes we defend the premises of those arguments abductively. And that's inference to the best explanation. Now, does that mean I can't imagine how naturalism does this, but I can't imagine how God does it? Well, sort of, but that is kind of an, and I'm not accusing Tom of this, but that's kind of an oafish way of thinking about it because the reality is what we're doing is we're. I can't imagine. Well, we've got all this evidence before us. We're looking at this evidence. We're looking at these, if you don't like the word evidence, Tom, then we'll just say we have all these data points in front of us. And what we're trying to do is we're trying to say what makes the best sense out of these data points. And considering all these data points, um, perhaps God makes a better sense of it than, uh, than some naturalistic explanation makes sense of it. Now, if someone wants to criticize uh, that form of reasoning, understand that is the form of reasoning that that uh, uh, Charles Darwin used in The Origin of Species. He used inference to the best explanation, and it happens in science quite a bit. In a paper uh, 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 written by Peter Lipton called Inference to the Best Explanation, actually it's, a, it's, in a, it's in the companion to the philosophy of science. Peter Lipton is professor of the head of the Department of History and Philosophy of Science at the University of Cambridge. And here's the summary. Uh, science depends on judgments of the bearing of evidence on theory. Scientists must judge whether an observation or the result of an experiment supports, disconfirms, or is simply irrelevant to a given hypothesis. Similarly, scientists may judge that, given all the available evidence, a hypothesis ought to be accepted or correct or nearly so, accepted as correct or nearly so, rejected as false or neither. Occasionally, these evidential arguments can be made on deductive grounds. If an experiment If an experimental result strictly contradicts a hypothesis, then the truth of the evidence deductively entails the falsity of the hypothesis. All right, so far, so good. In the great majority of cases... In the great majority of cases, however, the connection between evidence and hypothesis is non-demonstrative or inductive. In particular, this is so whenever a general hypothesis is inferred to be correct on the basis of the available data, since the truth of the data will not deductively entail the truth of the hypothesis. It always remains possible that the hypothesis is false, even though the data are correct. So, in science, do we use this thing, inference to the best explanation? Apparently so, and of course, it's there in philosophy. All we're saying is, is when you look at all the available evidence, all the available data points, what makes the best sense of this? What makes the best sense of this sort of a thing? And you want to be able to test that with further kinds of experimentation. Um, And sometimes those experimental means are inconclusive. Sometimes they show the falsity of the hypothesis, but you're looking for inference to the best explanation to sort of Um, truncate that and express it as, I can't imagine how naturalism would do this. I can't imagine how God would do it. Um, Therefore, God is, I think, to unfairly mischaracterize what's going on. But let's hear him say a little bit more about this.
4: There could be an infinitely many things about the natural world we simply don't know yet. So there could always be an unknown natural explanation that we cannot rule out. Therefore, this argument is stating a fact, not stating a fact about reality, it only tells us about the psychology of the person stating the argument, namely, that they can't imagine a natural explanation. If at some point we we later discover that there is a natural explanation for X, even though they said it was impossible, well then obviously it wasn't impossible after all. Necessarily meaning their argument wasn't a statement about reality, it was a statement about their perception, they couldn't believe it was the case.
0: So basically what uh, Tom has just said is, well, if you, make some, if you make some sort of a hypothesis by using the inference to the best explanation, and then it turns out you were wrong, well, then you were wrong. Well, okay, but that's trivially true, right? I mean, of course, if you make some, if you, if we say God is the explana- best explanation for something, and then later it turns out that naturalism, some naturalistic thing was the best explanation, well, okay, then, natu- then we were wrong. But of course, that's just to engage in naturalism of the gaps. And I understand that it must cause a lot of eye-rolling among atheists whenever we point out that when, when you accuse us of God of the gaps, that sometimes you guys are engaging in naturalism of the gaps. But what we just heard Tom say is, if you say that God is the best explanation, explanation, explanation for something and we don't have a better explanation. In other words, that's the best explanation that we have on offer. And then it turns out you were wrong. Well, then you'll be wrong and it'll turn out that wasn't the best explanation. Okay, fair enough. But that's trivially true. If I was wrong, if I turn out to be wrong, I will have been wrong that's to say nothing of importance to this at all. And to say then, because that could happen, we should just wait around for naturalism to figure something out. is just naturalism of the gaps. We think that naturalism has done a really great job in the past. So we expect that it'll do a really great job in the future. But of course you understand. And someone could say, well, yeah, induction would get us there. Right. Um, As we look back, a lot of things that were all the things that were supposed to be supernatural or non-material or not part of the physical universe uh, or not the response, not, you know materialism didn't explain them um Now we know that materialism explains them. I don't think that that's true. I don't think that's true for morality. I don't think that's true for consciousness. And if you think that you've figured out an obvious answer to the hard problem of consciousness, then please go tell everyone uh, that's doing philosophy of the mind that they've got it all wrong and they need to listen to you. Um, I'm not trying to be snarky about this. I'm just saying that I don't think that has been the case always. Has it been the case sometimes? Yes, it has been the case sometimes. But as I've said a lot on this show quite a bit, I'm, I'm saying it again now. Actually, what's happened is the further we've gotten, the more scientific evidence we have, the more we realize... Um, that materialism naturalism is even more and more difficult to maintain um that we're going to see more of that here in just a little while as we as we move forward so this is just a naturalism of the gaps and to say if it turns out you were wrong you will have been wrong okay if it turns out we were wrong we will have been wrong um, let us know when that happens until then I, I can't just put my faith in nature and say that there's and hold on to this naturalism of the gaps sort of thinking it just doesn't work for me uh, but he gives actually an, an example that that it has to do with the resurrection let's hear it
4: the most common example of such an argument is the argument from the resurrection of Jesus which go something like, it is really improbable that a natural explanation can explain the historical accounts. I can imagine if God existed or if the resurrection did occur, this would be a good explanation of the historical accounts. Therefore, this is evidence of the resurrection, God, or miracles. The problem with this argument is that imagining that God exists and would do something isn't evidence God does exist or actually did the thing. The resurrection is just an imagined explanation with no basis in reality. There are infinitely many such imaginary things that we can come up with to explain an unknown.
0: Okay, so is that what we say about the resurrection? We can say it's really improbable that naturalism has an explanation for this. So um, uh, we can imagine God doing it, so God did it. Again, this is to truncate in a a really bizarre way. So is it really improbable that naturalism has a good explanation for this? Yes. However, there's more to say about the resurrection. First of all, there are some apologists who are called evidential apologists. Now, again, sometimes people want to delineate between what are called presuppositional apologists who are often Calvinists and evidential apologists, which includes classical apologetics, what is called evidential apologetics and cumulative case apologetics. But understand that, um, there is also a difference among evidential apologists between classical and evidential and cumulative case. So, evidential evidential apologists like Gary Habermas and Mike Lykona, and perhaps and certainly some others, they would they yeah they would just go with they would just argue from the resurrection itself. They, they would just go to those historical facts and do that. However, classical apologists like myself, like William, like Craig, like J.P. Moreland, like Norman Geisler, was like a lot of other people. What we will do is we will first argue that God exists and give arguments to, for God's existence before moving on to the resurrection, because we understand this very point that that Tom is raising—that um, God is uh, it, there's a there's it's better. God serves as a better explanation for having raised Jesus from the dead if you've shown there's a God to have raised Jesus from the dead, right? So that's why we start by giving arguments for God's existence so that you have God in play who could create the universe from nothing. Raising Jesus from the dead would be small potatoes for him. That's the first thing I want to say. Secondly, I also want to say that there's actually something predictive, and I think a lot of people using minimal facts type of arguments often miss this, even though it's there in reasonable faith and it's there in uh, the resurrection of Jesus, a new historiographical approach. It's there in a lot of these books. I think people gloss over it, even a lot of apologists gloss over it, but I don't. And that is that it is universally accepted by scholars that Jesus thought of himself as God's eschatologic, eschatological agent, God's special agent to bring about the kingdom, as if God, Jesus was walking around in his lifetime holding up a sign saying, just watch my life and see what happens. Others make a really compelling case that, that Jesus—I mean, obviously, those of us who believe in Scripture— we believe that that Jesus foretold all these kind of things, talked about his uh, death, resurrection, all these kind of things. However, um, it's important to understand that even um, some people who are just doing historical Jesus studies would, would make a strong case that, that Jesus said, you know, gave these, talked about the fact that he was the Messiah, going to rise from the dead, all these kind of things. So um, with that understanding, with all of that on the table, there's actually a predictive thing at play here. Even if you just go with, God's that Jesus thought of himself as God's special eschatological agent such that he's holding up a sign during his life saying just watch my life and see what happens I'll prove it to you Uh, you have you have a predictive thing at play here so which is exactly what Tom always says he wants he wants some sort of a prediction well you have it there in the story of the historical Jesus so I think that, that there's a whole lot more to say about the resurrection than what Tom has simply said here it's not just I can't imagine how naturalism did it I can't imagine God did it therefore we go with God no it's We've got these various features on the table. Um, we've got a uh, reason to believe that God exists from previous argumentation. By the time we get to this point in the discussion, we've got that we've got Jesus thinking of himself as God's special eschatological agent. We've got Jesus death by Rome, uh, by the Romans under Pontius Pilate. We've got that people had experiences that they interpreted as um, uh, encounters with the risen Jesus. We've got their willingness to face persecution as a result of these claims. All of this stuff together um, we think makes a case that we can then you impl- can then apply inference to the best explanation, and we think that the resurrection is the best explanation of the hypothesis. That's what's going on there. It's not a simply just you know glib sort of certainty that oh all these Christians are saying is um, I can't imagine this and I can't imagine that. That that is frankly unfair, and I won't call it a straw man, but it's not the real man. It's some kind of it's some kind of a yeah it's a straw man.
4: Now there's there's an even more sophisticated version of the gaps argument, which is the intelligent design argument, which goes something like, it's really improbable that natural processes could produce, insert some complex property of life. Intelligence or intentionality can produce this same complex property as seen in human design things. Therefore it's reasonable to include intelligence and intentionality produce life. The reason this is the more sophisticated version of the gaps argument is that it plays a game of hide the fallacy, burying the I can and cannot imagine in the premises to make it look perfectly reasonable. In the intelligent design argument, the crux of the argument is based on this assertion that there is some complex property in life that is the same property that exists in uh, human design things or design things in general. Um, The problem with this argument is that that property is purely fabricated. It's purely an imaginary property. There is no such real property that has been demonstrated to exist in life and also in design things. It's purely a figment of their imagination. So the I can and cannot imagine is hidden in this property that they've asserted to exist.
0: Now, perhaps you're not quite aware of what he's saying there. What what he's trying to say is this property that exists in um, say biological things like the you know the, the nucleotides, the the language system, the code that exists there in life, this uh, Gattaca that we that we're aware of that that forms this language system, um, and we even refer to the process of copying that with the RNA as translation and things things of this sort. Um, he would say, "So, so what?" Somebody like uh, dimsky William Dembski would say uh, is, and Stephen Meyer with him, uh, these intelligent design advocates who are scientists would say something like, "Okay, look." You, you, have, you have information. This We can't really go into this, but it, you could call it Shannon information, which is just information. So if I just put a bunch of jibber jabber, just random letters on a screen, there is information there. But there's a difference between that and what we, we might term specified information that has a certain amount of specified complexity to it. So if we have words that actually you know mean something, you know, the words that can be read or ones and zeros that aren't just random, but ones and zeros that correspond to a computer program or result in a computer program that is, you know, it's all information. It's information just like the. Uh, random letters or random ones and zeros are information, but we can call this specified complexity when it has exactly what's necessary to result in some program or, or some, um, uh, you know, meaningful adaptive ability or some replication or something like that. That's a special category. Um, and, and so Tom would say about this, the, 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 there is no such thing as specified complexity. What do you mean there's no such thing as specified complexity? It's just made up. There's just, there's just, there's just, there's, he wouldn't even, I don't even know if he would call it information. There's just this stuff happening and the fact that some of it results in structures that then can reproduce themselves or whatever else, that's just a different formulation. So in other words, if you had a deck of cards and I deal, I dealt out cards and you had the perfect hand to win the game, like I always forget what that is in poker, like a Royal Flush or a Full House or one of you can tell me who, who knows about poker. Okay. Um, if you got just some random assortment, all of the cards that I dealt out are equally unlikely, right? Um, however, that you got exactly the hand you needed to win the game is it is because your your card assortment has specified complexity as the right arrangement that, that corresponds to an independent pattern the pattern we understand is necessary to win the game such that if you got that two or three or four times in a row uh, some people don't ever get it if you got it two or three or four times in a row we we know something's up we know that that's not uh, but but what tom would have to say about that is no there's nothing special about that arrangement of cards uh, that that arrangement of cards is no more special than this arrangement over here that has almost no value um, and so it's the same thing with um, any amount of information that, that we have. And no matter how complex, the, the complexity itself is a made up category. There's, there's no such thing. Well, you can say that all day, all you want, all day. But you understand that in in the, the journal articles, they talk about this being a code. They talk about encoding. They talk about translation. Uh, people talk, people do talk about and explaining this as though it's a language system. These kind of things that these, uh, that, I mean, that. There is something here that we're talking about that is not made up. It's not made up. It corresponds. And what we want to say is, in an argument like this, with a design argument, is look, we are aware of how improbable, you're right that it's improbable. Take abiogenesis, first life. You're right that it's incredibly, that we say it's incredibly improbable. Uh, And you're right that we say, I don't know if you pointed this out, that we do know of something that can result in this. It actually is very much like, Uh, a specified complexity, which we know is the result of a mind, a mind could do this. It looks like in terms of the numbers that um, random processes couldn't do this, that it's prohibitively unlikely. Therefore we do inference to the best explanation. What's the best explanation for this, that a mind did this. And you know what, even if you want to run on methodological naturalism, you shouldn't be in a position unless you run on a very specific understanding of methodological naturalism that um, that a priori excludes mind as a possibility, you don't, you don't even have to violate methodological naturalism to say, it looks like a mind did this. Maybe it was aliens. Maybe it was something else. I don't know. Of course, we know that the best explanation we think is that it's a god. But at the very least, you don't have to deny that methodological naturalism to say it looks like a mind. That's all the intelligent design community is saying, is that the numbers do not allow for this to happen. And by the way, it's not that we don't know enough about abiogenesis or we don't know enough about the probabilities. It's that we do know enough— and it, and that's what's making it very difficult for us to land on something like this. Um, now, I recently read a book called Undeniable. This by Douglas Axe. Um, this is an intelligent design guy, and uh, but but he's a scientist, I think. And and he. Um, in Chapter 8, I was looking for someone who, because his his analogies and illustrations are very complex and th- th- they're really long. So I was looking for someone who uh, captured it really simply. And Joel Tay, uh, who himself is a scientist, I think, um, uh, summarized Chapter 8 of uh, Undeniable this, this way and this analogy that he uses. So uh, he says, uh, he's talking about can inventions happen by chance. So inventions is what we're talking about when we talk about some new stru- some new thing that emerges in life that now has this use. And I think you could uh, te- you could refer to abiogenesis with this as well. Um, imagine Earth as our search area and our target is a small indentation on a plaque. By the way, I have it right here for you to see. All right. There's the plaque. Um, our target is a small indentation on a plaque on the ground that lies between the board boundaries of Colorado, Utah, New Mexico, and Arizona. That's what you see on the screen there. Uh, if we drop 2000 pins, like, like, like a pin, like, you know, a pin at random all over earth, th- what is the chance that a pin would land in our target spot? You've got 2000 pins. They're going to be randomly dropped all over the earth. You know, you've got Antarctica, you've got all the continents, you've got uh, the entirety of the United States, you've got Australia, you've got everything, the whole world, the ocean, everything. We're going to drop 2000 pins. Now, there's actually a website where you can do this. Um, I should, I should have, maybe I'll put it in the show notes. You can drop these pins. You can try this. It will randomly drop pins for you. And what are the chances that you're going to get one of those pins to land in this right on a little pinhead spot in the middle of that plaque? That is at the Suna uh, uh, point, which is the, the the Colorado, Utah, New Mexico, and Arizona um, where they meet. Right? What what are the chances? And what he does is throughout the chapter he, he asks, "What are the chances it would happen forty times in a row? What are the chances it would happen ten times in a row?" Like these are the kind of probabilities we're talking about. Um, so here is what it says: using an, using another analogy, Acts. Axe asks uh, the reader, how many possible—so now we're on to a new thing, so let me take this off of here. Using another analogy, Axe asks the reader, how many possible images can be stored on a 300-pixel by 400-pixel image? The number would be a single line of numbers stretching across 198 pages. That's how long the number would be. In comparison, all the atoms in the universe can be represented with an 80-character line of text. Axe likens these examples to what we see in nature and concludes that the probability for random chance to explain what we observe is so remotely improbable that it requires more coincidences than the whole universe could physically produce. While it is theoretically possible for extremely remote possibilities to happen, we should reject it if we find it to be practically impossible. All right. So in other words, what he's saying is it's not that there is it's not that there's a zero chance of this. It's a non-zero chance. But understand, we're talking about numbers as big as a number that would be 198 pages long. Or let's say, let's, let's, let's cut that in half. Let's cut that in a third. Let's cut, let's cut it down to just 20 pages long. I mean, think how big of a number we're talking about when all of the atoms in the physical universe, um, all of the atoms in the universe can be represented with an 80-character line of text. That's that's the number we're talking about. So when we're talking about it's incredibly improbable, yeah, it's incredibly improbable. Does it look like something we're already aware of? Yeah. This language system looks very much like what we're aware of that is the product of a mind. It's why Bill Gates, who is no friend to Christianity, at least in the sense that I don't think he's a Christian, I think he might be an atheist or an agnostic, says it's like a computer software program. Uh, that, you know, but but uh way more advanced than anything we've ever been able to produce, right? So uh, the bottom line is to, to say what he said, we just can't imagine it, is to really truncate what's going on here. What about other arguments that we use?
4: The cosmological argument is I cannot imagine how naturalism can create a universe without space. The moral argument, I cannot imagine how a non-conscious thing can ground morality.
0: The cosmological argument, and he's probably talking, I mean, there is not a cosmological argument, but he's talking about a family of arguments, cosmological arguments, I guess. And uh, let's say the Kalam cosmological argument is that we can't imagine. How did he say it? Let's let's make sure we get him right.
4: The cosmological argument is I cannot imagine how naturalism can create a universe without space-time. The moral argument I cannot imagine.
0: I can't, okay. Is that what we're saying with the with the cosmological arguments? No, no, it is not. <laughs> what we're saying is, all right, look. Everything that begins to exist must have a cause for its existence. The universe began to exist. Therefore, the universe must have a cause for its existence. The universe is space, time, and physical matter, right? So what does that mean? Now, are we just saying we can't imagine something else that could cause these things? No, we're saying if it's the cause of space, time, and physical matter, then the cause is not space, time, or physical matter because you find space, time, or physical matter. That's part of the thing we're trying to explain, right? So what, what so we know that it's a spaceless timeless non-material something. Well, what does that leave you with? It leaves you with abstract objects and then it leaves you with minds. Minds abstract objects don't have causal powers. Minds do. Uh, Also, it has to be something with libertarian freedom because uh, if it's in a spaceless, timeless, non-material state, there is no prior determinism to work on this first cause. Moreover, nothing random can happen because it's in a spaceless, timeless state, right? So the cause of the physical universe must be something that has libertarian freedom. What What has those things? Minds do. It's not that we can't imagine something else. It's that when we plug in what we can see must be true about the cause of the physical universe, it begins to describe a spaceless, timeless, non-material, sufficiently powerful, exceedingly wise mind. That serves as the best explanation for the beginning of the universe. Notice what I said. This serves as the best explanation. If there's a competing explanation, I'd like to know what it is. Because so far, what we've gotten in the past is universe creating pixies, um, a cheese sandwich, the flying spaghetti monster, and when you start, you know, burrowing down into what we take away the things, what we're talking about, it's just a description of God and calling it something else like flying pixie or a spaghetti monster. So this, it's not that we can't imagine. It's that when we look at what we do, the positive case we do have, um, it, it leads us to God. Uh, with with moral categories, he says we can't understand how an impersonal thing can ground morality. Uh, exactly right it's not that we it's not just though that we can't imagine it look at what morality is look at the things that that look at the things that we're talking about when we're talking about morality we're talking about certain things being right and certain things being wrong we look at the animal kingdom and we don't see anything like the robust sort of morality that we have now if you're thinking well yeah but we we have the morality we have because we constructed it and blah 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 no 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 that's not what he's saying he's saying we can't understand how an impersonal force could ground morality and that's absolutely right. It's not just that we can't uh, think of something. It's that an impersonal force serves as a lousy explanation because we're talking about something, a collection of moral facts that have a certain teleology to them. Forced copulation is an incredibly important thing in the animal kingdom because it, it helps to reproduce a, a certain, uh, you know, a civilization of animals. But um, and we don't call it we don't call it You know, I don't want to say it and be demonetized, but we don't want to call it what we call it, forced copulation, right, uh, among humans. We have a word for that, and it only applies to humans because it's a moral category, right? There's no reason that this should have been true about human beings. However, we have this incredibly specific list of moral facts. You say, well, people disagree. They disagree on how these moral facts play out, but more or less we've got uh, a general agreement on general moral truths. And that's really, really interesting, isn't it? It's got a teleology to it. And the best explanation for that is a mind. The best explanation for how it could be objectively grounded is in a personal mind. So with all of these things that he brings up, we see that he has to truncate them. And in some cases, I think if it's not a straw man, um, we need a new term for what it is because it's something really close because it's not just I can't imagine and I can't imagine. It's let's look at the data points. And what do we see? Well, we do inference to the best explanation and we think the best explanation is God. That's how we do that. Um, So I think that takes care of all of that. Let's move on to Matt now and hear what Matt has to say. And here he's gonna tell us about extraordinary claims.
1: The claim there is a dog is mundane. And that's because it's already consistent with what we know. Whereas the claim that there's a dragon or a God or whatever is not mundane and we view it as extraordinary. But the truth is, no matter what the claim is, it requires sufficient evidence to for belief to be warranted, um, they just feel different for us.
0: Right, it just requires sufficient evidence, and it and they just feel different to us. Such that we call some things extraordinary and other things we don't call extraordinary. Now, this is actually pretty interesting because I thought Randall said something, and he said it toward the end of the debate. But man, it was so great! So, first of all, extraordinary is a subjectively chosen term. Matt tells us this. Matt is right. All we're saying is you have to have sufficient evidence. You have claims and you have evidence. And whatever you feel in your heart about those things is irrelevant. Do you have the evidence to back up those claims? Yes or no. That's simple. But the fact that you want to ratchet up how much evidence is necessary or what you'll consider as evidence because you consider it subjectively to be extraordinary which I liked what Michael Icona said about that. What, what, is, what is extraordinary evidence? Does it glow? You know, what, what is it? Um, it be, the fact that you subjectively feel in your heart that it's an extraordinary claim and therefore requires some special category of evidence, it, this is irrelevant. You're just telling me about your mental state of affairs. The fact is we're looking for sufficient evidence for the claims. And toward the end of the of the debate where Matt's saying something about oh, a God, something like that is extra, is an extraordinary claim, Uh, Randall says something. I thought this was great. He was like, because Matt says a dog is not an extraordinary claim to say that I have a dog, whereas to say that you have a dragon or a god or whatever, that that's an extraordinary claim. Randall says, "Uh, well, actually, think about this. Most of the world does not think it's an extraordinary claim to claim that there is a god, right? That is an incredibly mundane claim for most of human history. Most of human history has said no, that's not extraordinary at all. But imagine a civilization like that, like most of human history, for whom to say that there's a god is an incredibly mundane claim that we should all accept. Um, then, but they don't have any dogs in this culture. Let's say they only have lizards and snakes. Okay, or some, you know, stuff like that. To say that, you, that there is another land where there are these furry, four-legged creatures that serve as friends and companions to people, um, and make loud noises when people approach your home and love and seem to love you and you can have a relationship with them and they can, so they can bring you the newspaper in the morning and all, all these kind of things. They can sniff out drugs, you know, all, all that stuff. That sounds like an extraordinary claim if someone's got no experience of a dog. For those people in such a civilization, and this is the point Randall was making, the claim about God is mundane. The claim about dog is not mundane. It's extraordinary. What does that tell you? That tells you that what you consider to be extraordinary is a subjective claim that tells us about how you feel in your heart. It doesn't tell us about reality. And as Matt said, rightly from the beginning, what we need is sufficient evidence for the claims. And so I wish that he would have, I I don't think that it was consistently held throughout and should have been. Now, remember that um, Randall had said about when it's rational to accept something is if you don't have an undercutting defeater, nothing seems weird. It seems like say someone's telling you the restaurant you're looking for is six blocks down. You're rational to believe that. Well, I wonder what Matt thinks about that sort of a claim.
1: And so when somebody tells me, "Hey, the restaurant six blocks down," okay, that's a testimony, and by and large, I'm going to take them at face value for that, but only for the extent of me going six blocks down to see if the restaurant is actually there. The proof is in that six block walk to the destination, that is when we are rationally justified in believing that the restaurant is where that person said it is.
0: Now, th- now, I don't want you to miss this because this to my mind is huge. Notice what Matt is saying. You miss it. It all sounds fine unless you really listen to the details. I have said before, and I'm n- I don't like to impugn people's motives, and so I'm not doing that here. But whether intentionally or unintentionally, I believe Matt has constructed an epistemology such that nothing is allowed to convince him of the truth of God's existence. And and listen, Matt, if you see this, I'm not I'm not trying to be rude. I know that's upsetting. Um, I, I don't mean to be I don't mean to be a jerk. I like Matt. I like Matt as a person. I like Tom as a person. But, and, but I think that Matt, at least, has constructed an epistemology such that nothing could convince him. When you've constructed an epistemology, that if someone could part an ocean in Jesus' name, and you, and that and and you look at that and you don't believe, <laughs> you, that, that is, that is an unbridled skepticism. That is an unreasonable level of skepticism. That is someone who's constructed an epistemology such that nothing can convince them when you ask them, what would it, t- when they say, I need a demonstration and you say, well, what does that demonstration look like? And you say, um, I don't know. Uh, but if God knows he would show me, but, but you can't tell me what that demonstration would look like. And no matter how incredible the examples we give you, you say, no, I wouldn't believe with that. That you're, it's set up such that you're allowed to dismiss anything, unless it gives you Cartesian certainty. Of course, you've already said in the past that you don't think any belief can be known with Cartesian certainty. So this is an unreasonable level of skepticism. This is constructing an epistemology. Now, now with this, what I really don't want you to miss, and listen close if you're just casually listening. What Matt has just said is that if someone tells you and you do not have an undercutting defeater, they seem like a reasonable person. They seem like a sensible person. They tell you the restaurant is six blocks down. You are not rational to believe that. He says, I'm going to accept that, whatever that means, but I'm only rational to believe it once I get there and see it with my own eyes. I want you to hear him say it again because I don't want to, I don't want to sound like I'm straw manning. Listen.
1: And so when somebody tells me Hey, the restaurant, six blocks down. Okay, that's a testimony. And by and large, I'm going to take them at face value for that, but only for the extent of me going six blocks down to see if the restaurant is actually there. The proof is in that six block walk to the destination. That is when we are rationally justified in believing that the restaurant is where that person said it is.
0: When we see it, when we walk down there and see it, that is when we are rationally justified in believing that the
1: restaurant is there.
0: And let's get a little bit more on this.
1: Is it possible for me to form a belief that the restaurant is in fact six down, six blocks down? Yes. Does that mean that it's rational for me to form that belief? No, I would argue that the belief that may be rational to believe is I am convinced this person is more than likely honestly trying to direct me to where the restaurant is. That's what is, that is what is the default assumption when I'm engaging with someone who I don't know. However, for me to conclude that they are in fact right about the restaurant is not based solely on their testimony. It is a base, The proof is in the pudding. The proof is in getting to the restaurant.
0: Okay. So now uh, just wanted to play that clip because he unpacks it more there. He makes it clear so that it's not that he just misspoke. That's not what's going on here. What he's saying is you are not rational to believe that the restaurant is there when somebody tells you until you go down and see it. Now you're rational to believe now. Um, now it, what I want to know is, is that true with everybody? Is that, is that true with anybody? Cause that's a mundane claim, right? About the restaurant. So let's imagine if Matt comes home and his girlfriend, I don't know if he has a girlfriend or who his girlfriend is, but let's imagine he comes home and his girlfriend says, Hey Matt, there is a, um, yard sale around the corner and there's a lamp there. I want to buy. Will you go with me to go to that yard sale? If Matt was to express his epistemology here, what he would have to say to her is, I don't believe you that there is a yard sale around the corner or a lamp, but I will go with you. And when I see it with my own eyes, then I'll believe it. Or he could say, I believe you, but I want you to understand. I believe you irrationally until I go and see it around the corner. Then I'll believe, then I'll be rational in my belief. But right now I'm being irrational or I just don't believe you. That would be absurd. How does a position like that emerge? Because most people would say, no, that's ridiculous. Of course, you're rational to believe. Of course, you're rational to believe the guy who lives in the town and tells you the restaurant you're looking for is six blocks down. You're rational to believe it. You may find out later that you were wrong by conducting the experiment and going down there, but you're still rational to believe it until that time. Uh, This is to confuse whether you're rational to believe something with whether it is actually the truth. And of course, the point that Randall wants to make throughout this thing, and I think Samuel too, is to say, no, you can be rational in believing something that actually turns out to be false, but you are still rational to believe it. You say, yeah, but are you saying that that God might not exist? No, no, no. I'm I'm saying if the point of this debate is, um, are you rational to believe uh, in God? then yes, people are rational to believe in God. That's a much lower stakes claim that that th- this whole thing is centering around. And that's the important piece of this puzzle. But how do you get to that place where you're saying that it's irrational to, to believe that what the guy tells you about the restaurant six blocks down? Now, again, I can't impugn motives, um, but but I can imagine it going something like this. Okay, look. I don't want to be in a position to say that these Christians are rational to believe in God. How can, how am I going to deal with that? Well, one thing I could do is I could say, all right, look, uh, I, I could say you're not rational to believe something until you ha- until you have visual certainty about it or something equivalent to visual certainty, like walking down and seeing the okay yeah, that would mean that no Christians are or at least very few perhaps are rational to believe right And then the person could ask themselves, but wait a minute what does that do to what does that do to regular everyday stuff? well like what well for example let's say some, you're in a town and you ask someone where a restaurant is and they say oh a restaurant's six blocks down is it rational to believe them? Well yeah of course but wait a minute you just said you know you have to have something equivalent to visual certainty. Oh yeah. So are we really going to say now that you you are irrational to believe that person? So you go down and see the restaurant? It does sound weird, but if I don't say something like that, I'm going to be in a spot where I have to say these Christians are rational to believe in God. So what am I going to do? Well, let's just bite the bullet. And yeah, let's just say, we're just going to have to say, you cannot rationally believe that the restaurant is there until you walk down there. I'm telling you, this this would, this would sounds, and I'm not saying Matt did this. I don't know if he came up with this principle. Perhaps someone else did, but whoever came up with this principle, it sounds a lot to me. I can't impugn motives, but it sounds a lot to me like someone is saying, how do I get out of this spot? And it may cost me sounding silly talking about everyday stuff, but I'm just going to have to do that because because – I can't be saying these Christians are rational to believe this sort of thing. I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong. I'm just telling you that that's the level. When we say that it looks like someone has constructed an epistemology to disallow for certain conclusions, this is the sort of weird stuff that I'm talking about. I want to make another point here. And and this, again, about a month ago, I, I realized that this is happening. I, I realized this is happening with skeptics. And I'm going to, with Matt, because I like Matt, I think Matt tries to be consistent. We're going to chalk this up to just being funny or cute or misspeaking. But but I want to point out something as an example of the sort of thing I've been talking about lately. Listen to what Matt says here.
3: Now, I'm glad that Matt conceded that he, it's possible that people have had for themselves religious experiences analogous to what Ellie Arroway has in that scene in contact, which could, for them, provide justification uh, so that they could rationally believe that. And of course, there are billions of people who exactly say that. I've had a particular experience. So I think that uh, at most, what you would be at at this point is back into the corner of agnosticism. You'd have to say, since I haven't had those experiences, oh, I stop. can't speak to it.
1: Oh uh, Okay. First of all, um, <laughs> agnosticism and atheism are not mutually exclusive. They, they answer two completely different questions. But this This discussion here, which, by the way, in Randall's opening statement, he declared exactly what Tom and I need to do, and that is we need to provide a defeater to the resolution. Well, I'm sorry to let you know. Maybe you're reading from old notes, but there's no resolution for this debate. It's just listed as sufficient reasons to believe in God, question mark. It's a discussion about whether or not there's sufficient reasons. Me pointing out that you cited a fiction to support something else that I think is fiction. Yes. Okay. Whatever. But I did, in fact, address the thought experiment aspect of it. And me saying that someone may be rationally justified is noted and and expanded on about the fact that even if you, Randall, were rationally justified in your belief about God, that would not serve as a rational justification for anybody else.
0: Okay, so now now now, listen, there is a lot there. First of all, there's a couple of times in this debate where Matt gets really upset about the terminology This happens. I took up for Matt in our debate, and and I'm still this way. I don't care what you call yourself. I just want to know what you mean by what you call yourself so that we're not talking past each other. That's all I want. But notice that Matt speaks as though he's got some sort of authority here beyond what everybody else speaking has, um, and 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 kind of okay. Now I'm gonna have to explain this, and goes through about uh, you know atheism and agnosticism, and words have meanings, and all words have other meanings, and more than one meaning, and, and all this sort of thing. To my mind, Randall is just trying to get a get a beat on what's being said, and what Randall is saying is what you're describing is what I'm used to thinking of as agnosticism. And that and that me, that is important that I know that and talk about what that means with respect to the debate that we're having, because if you're in a position of what I would call agnosticism, whatever you want to call it, where you're saying something like, well, maybe maybe some people have, are rationally justified in belief because they actually have had a real experience with God. Because Matt doesn't want to grant that later. He kind of fights against that but 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 that still doesn't put you in a position of knowing of everyone being able to rationally say that that that, that or believe in God. He's saying like the best you can do is take a position of what I'm calling agnosticism. You, you seem to be saying what I think of as agnosticism. and and Matt gets upset about this. Now there are <laughs> I've noticed some things and if anyone debates Matt in the future, let me just go ahead and help you out. There are a couple of things that really set Matt off. And and I, I'm not saying let me help you out that you should say these things. If you listen in my debate with Matt, there is a moment in my first rebuttal where I go out of my way to to look around at him from the podium to try and say, to try and clarify to him that I am not questioning his experience. There are at least three things that he gets up get really upset about. One is if you do this whole thing about what does atheism mean? Um, and and that's Fine. I just just know that. Um, secondly, he gets really upset if you if you question whether or not he was ever really a Christian or whether he really, you know, the the, the validity of of the, those experiences he had when he was a Christian. And that's the point at which or whether he was really searching, you know, um, that's why when I was debating him, I, I was making a point about um, how obvious. it it, it is or how many reasons there are to believe. And I turned around and said to him, I'm not trying to say you weren't genuinely searching. I said that because I knew that would, I know those things set him off and I was trying to avoid that so we could have a good conversation. And a third thing is he gets really upset when you bring up the you know, atrocities done in the name of atheism, or I'm sorry, that he wants to point out were not done in the name of atheism, but that were done by atheists in the 20th century. That really sets him off. Those are three things that you can know, and I'm saying this as a courtesy to Matt for future debaters. If you debate Matt, be careful around those things. If if you want to have a, a discussion where it's still friendly, because I've seen those things go off the rails. There are things that'll set me off the rails too. I don't think in a debate, but in private conversation. So I'm just, I'm just saying. Um, but the thing I really want to and notice there was something else here about the topic of the debate. You know, the topic of the debate is um, you know w- whether it's. Uh, just a discussion about whether there are re- reasons to believe and what are these evidences and that, that kind of thing, or whether the question is, is it rational to believe in God? I don't care. I'm just saying I've seen the evidence around that because of, of Samuel. I He brings it out at the end of this debate. I, I don't have a dog in that fight. All I'm telling you is what happened. But the thing I really want to hit on here is Matt says— because Randall brought up a fictional story, the story contact and the movie with Jodie Foster as an analogy. And this happens all the time. We do it with the matrix. We do it with all kinds of things to make a point by analogy. And Matt kind of fair enough. He took a shot over the bow about how that's a fiction, right? Uh, Well, yeah, it's a fiction It's an analogy, but fair enough. But, but what Matt says here is the fact that you brought up a fiction to, to talk about something that I also think of as a fiction or think is a fiction. I can't, it was hard to hear him either. I think of as a fiction or think is a fiction, which is Christianity or the existence of God. Now I know that Matt's position is not that God is a fiction because that would be to make a positive claim. That would be to claim that God does not exist. God is a fiction or Christianity is a fiction or whatever. Matt wants to take the position of I don't believe in God, which is not the same as saying I believe God does not exist or I, dis- I actively disbelieve in God. He's taking that lack theist approach. Which is, I lack a belief in God right? Well, here's where I've been saying for a lot recently until it occurred to me about a month ago, if you're going to be that kind of a person that's, that's going to take that position that I, I'm not saying there is no God, I'm just saying, so I don't have a burden of proof. I don't have a burden of proof. I don't have to show you that God doesn't exist or present arguments that God doesn't exist because I'm not making that claim. I'm just saying I don't currently believe and I'm open to what the evidence is. What is your evidence? If you're If you're going to take that position, then we shouldn't expect to find you chest-thumping about it's a fiction and it's like Santa Claus and it's like um, the Easter Bunny and, and uh, any of these kind of things, your Sky Daddy and all of that sort of thing. We shouldn't expect to see that because that is to betray what you really do think, that there is no God. If you are going to say, I think God is a fiction, you are making a claim that God does not exist. Now, maybe you're just saying a tongue-in-cheek thing in a debate and we'll give you that, but this sort of language is why it's hard to take some lack theist positions seriously because they turn out not to be lack theist positions. And the only reason I can think of that a person would claim to be a uh, an atheist in the sense that I just lack a belief in and, and then go around saying it's a fiction is you just don't want the burden of proof in the debate. Well, I'm not saying this directly to Matt because I think probably Matt was saying this tongue in cheek for all I know. But anyone who does that, if you want a seat at the grown-ups table to have a sensible discussion, you can use that mockery. You can talk about it as a fiction if you're willing to back it up with an argument that God does not exist. Or you can have a seat at the grown-ups table and and take that position of atheist that is defined as, I just lack a belief, but we shouldn't then expect to hear you claiming that God is a fiction or like the fairy tale or the Easter bunny or Santa Claus or any of that stuff. But you need to be consistent in this if we're going to take it seriously. That is a very important point, I think, that needs to be made. All right, so back to this issue of extraordinary claims. Is it an extraordinary claim that God exists? Let's let's hear some more from Matt and, and uh, Randall Rouser.
3: You're talking about what's, what's extraordinary, right? Well, in fact, I hate to break it to you, but to so the vast majority of people on earth, belief in God, such as we've defined it here, is not extraordinary. <laughs> so it seems to me that Yeah, actually, that's true. So it seems like you're just projecting your plausibility framework on everybody else and say, well, for me, that's extraordinary. This is uh, not extraordinary. So you have to have additional evidence for that. Well, to persuade you, yes, but that doesn't mean they have to have additional evidence for them to be justified, because they have a different background set of beliefs or what we call a plausibility structure than you do.
0: So here's the thing. I respect Matt as a debater. I think he's one of the best debaters on the planet right now. I think he is an incredible wordsmith. And I don't mean that in any sort of he's, you know, like he's doing word salad. I mean, he is in, he's an incredible public speaker. Um, I think he's better than Hitchens. I think his content is better than Hitchens. Um, so I'm paying all these compliments. However, This is something that I think needs to be clearly expressed. How is it, Matt? How is it that it really seems like, so Randall sees this, you seem to be taking your epistemology, forcing that on everyone else, and and, and also basically saying something like, setting it up such as, it doesn't say this, but it really seems to be set up that, well, that doesn't convince me because I have this epistemology. And if it doesn't convince me, well, then you didn't win this debate. Okay. Randall has picked up on this. Um, I'm sure Samuel has picked up on this. I know that Michael Jones picked up on this and called it out. Um, Tyler Vela has picked up on this, I think. I have picked up on this. This this seems to be that you have constructed an epistemology, and then you try to hold other people to that epistemology. And in addition to that, because you have that epistemology, the debate becomes, can we convince Matt to be a Christian? And if we can't convince Matt to believe that God exists or to be a Christian, then that's tantamount to Matt winning the debate. That's not how it works. That's not how debate works. This is why in my debate, I said, listen, th- these are the kind of things that Matt says he wouldn't even believe if... X, if you know someone parted a notion in Jesus' name. if you would believe if you were presented with those things, I'm not saying those things have happened, but if you would believe if you saw those things, then Matt's opinions about what should or should not be believed and what should and should not count as evidence should have absolutely no hold on you because that is an unrealistic level of skepticism. I do think there is a trying to impose. Of um, an epistemology on everyone else. Let's um and, and a thinking that seems extraordinary to me, which again we saw was subjective. What you think is extraordinary is subjective. Remember the people on the island who it's not it's a mundane claim that God exists, but they've never seen a dog, and that is a, a an extraordinary claim. All right, so so what you need additional evidence for this? So a special kind of evidence that th- this. Uh, go back to what Matt said at the beginning. It's all you need is sufficient evidence. And just because you find it extraordinary doesn't mean the sufficient, what we're calling sufficient, gets ratcheted up. But but we need to get some more on this imposing of belief onto others.
3: So you ultimately back into what I'm accusing you of here, which is projecting your plausibility framework onto the entire human population and saying, well, if they don't match your plausibility framework, then they believe extraordinary and unjustified things.
0: Okay. So now that's what Randall said. I think Randall's right. But let's let Matt answer that for himself.
3: Yeah, we'll we'll be quiet now.
1: (laughs) Sorry, the problem here isn't that we're trying to impose like our framework on people. We're trying to impose a reasonable framework on people. So it's not about this wasn't our it's not like Tom and I sat here and came up with skepticism and science and how to establish the burden of proof. It's a bunch of great thinkers over the years kept saying, you know what, if we allow this standard of evidence then all sorts of stuff gets in which is conflicting which is why if testimonial evidence is deemed rational enough to to be supportive of a god belief now of a sort that has that has to be just that has to be granted to every god believer and so now you have you you are claiming that there are a bunch of people who believe in a bunch of different gods and they're all rational and that Sets up something that is in conflict with what we what we know to be true, which is they cannot all be correct, and so we need uh, something.
3: We're not talking about correct. I mean, rational and correct or, or having knowledge are two different things. I guess people can rationally disagree. That's not a big revelation.
0: Yeah, it's not a big revelation. And so, what in case you didn't see the debate, one thing that Randall rouser points out is, yeah, if someone's raised by their parents to believe that naturalism is true. It might be rational for them to accept that, given what they currently know, it, it might be a rational position to take. That doesn't mean it's true, but it also means that it's not—a it, it, person is also rational to say, okay, I, I was raised to believe that the Christian God exists. I'm rational to accept that. But notice a couple of other things. He says here—let's let, go back and hear the, the first part of that again. I want to get the beginning of it.
1: Yeah, so don't, we'll be quiet now. <laughs> Sorry, the problem here isn't that we're trying to impose like our framework on people. We're trying to impose a reasonable framework on people. So it's not about this wasn't our. It's not like Tom and I sat here and came up with skepticism and science and. How OK,
0: to- uh, what I want to say about this is what we're, we're not trying to impose ours. We're trying to uh, impose an acceptable one, right, for how to get to rationally coming to believe that. Fair enough. But that's what we're all trying to do. That's what Randall's saying. You're you're imposing the one that you think is is best. Fine, but but we need to argue about that and decide whether that is, you know, a, a good a good one a good thing to present, a good thing that we should all have to hold to. And we find out almost immediately what's under the hood. He says, "Me and Tom didn't sit here and come up with skepticism or science." Well, I don't think you did, but that does betray something that what you're looking for is something that science can give us or something we might say science-y. I said that in our debate. Are you looking for something sciencey? And he said, yes. So so we're talking about something that is that is meta. We're not talking about something in the physical universe, in the natural world that science deals with. And this did come up a little bit in the debate. Uh, Matt tries to say, no, 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 science is not confined to nature. If if there was a way to investigate the supernatural, then science would have things to say about that. But nobody's come up with a way to do that yet. No, no, no. Natural science is dealing with nature. And when you're asking for the supernatural to show up in nature so that science can then claim it, it's not my fault that what we're talking about isn't something that natural science has immediate access to whenever it wants it. Now, we do see some inferences actually in nature. We talked about that earlier in this discussion with the design sort of thing. But what I want to say here is y- there, there is this empiricism. There is the oh, and, I'm, and I forgot to say this earlier. Now, listen, this is this is maybe the most important thing I want to say in this entire discussion today. And I hate it because it's come an hour and 17 minutes into this when hardly anybody's listening. But if you listen to this, you've got a gold star here. I have been criticized multiple times for, for saying about certain skeptics or certain atheists that what it seems like they're looking for is Cartesian certainty, and anything less than Cartesian certainty is rejected by, by them. And until we can give them Cartesian certainty, then they don't have to believe, which means they're, they're, they're engaging in pinhole thinking, looking for any little way to wiggle out. Okay. Okay. When Matt sets up his epistemology about what is rational to believe, to say that if a guy in a car says the restaurant is six blocks down, I'm not rational to believe until I walk down there and see it for myself. What you're saying is I need visual certainty. Now, Matt would say even seeing the restaurant doesn't give him Cartesian certainty because Cartesian certainty isn't really a thing. And how does he know he's not in the matrix? And how does he know he can trust his reason and all of those sorts of things? I get it. But what he is asking for is visual certainty before he thinks we can be rational to believe something, which is tantamount in common parlance to saying as close to uh, Cartesian certainty as one can get um, in the physical universe. That is setting the bar as high. This is what I've been saying. This is, this is, this is tantamount to asking for Cartesian certainty. You, as, as science has gone forward, uh, God hasn't been, theism hasn't been pushed back in the corner to whatever's left over. The bar keeps getting raised higher and higher and you have to raise skepticism higher and higher to the point of visual certainty, which I think is a stand-in for as close as we can get to Cartesian certainty um, in order to maintain skepticism. That's what's going on here. So the next time that someone says, well, you're falsely accusing skeptics of looking for Cartesian certainty. I want to point back to this moment where I'm told you're not rational to believe. It's not rational to believe something until you have something like visual certainty of it, which is which you might as well be saying Cartesian certainty. That's that's I mean, that is an important point that I don't want to be missed in what we're saying here. Now, let's go back to the principle of credul- cred- uh, of credulity. Remember, if something seems impossible to doubt, then I'm rational in believing it until there's an undercutting defeater, and let's bring Samuel back into this thing.
2: I'm, I'm just the reason why I'm asking this is because I when I when, when Tom asked me when, when I was on Tom's channel, Tom asked me why why do I believe in God? I said, Tom, I'm not going to come here and lie to you and say the reason I believe in God is because I found the Kalam cosmological argument convincing or the the fine-tuning argument of the universe at age five. You know, I realized that this was, none of those happened. Uh, I believe God because primarily uh, my parents told me so. My dad was a pastor. My great-grandfather was a missionary. Uh, And uh, that's how it started. But eventually, uh, I began to find that uh, faith in God uh, actually led to me experiencing God in, in a multiple of different ways, uh, multiple different ways. And I'm saying that uh, if skepticism is the way to go, then I need to, I want to know, because I don't want to waste my life, right? Living on believing in God, if it's not real, I want to know what are the rational defeaters out there that I should be aware of. And if there is not, why, I, why am I not justified in continue believing?
0: So again, he's saying, look, man, I did accept this to be true because I was taught it as a child. I think it's rational for children, if they don't have an undercutting defeater, to believe what their parents are telling them. Um, and and um, oh, I want to make want to write something down here. I don't want to forget it. Um, but he says, I, I, I do that. And as I've grown, I've actually seen more confirmatory evidence in terms of my own experiences. Why shouldn't I believe what's the undercutting defeater here? Which, again, this reveals the difference in how Randall and Samuel are approaching this versus how Tom and Matt are approaching this. And to be fair to both sides, it could have been a, because of a of a, of a a reasonable confusion over what the subject of the debate really was. But um, but he's saying, look, what's the undercutting defeater for this? I have my own experience. I have the experience of others. One thing I wanted to say was. A minute ago when Matt was saying, look, if we go with what you're saying, the reason we shouldn't go with what you're saying is because if Randall is right and it's rational to believe things, then you got people believing all kinds of contradictory things. And and then you've got all these religious people of various religions who are rational to believe the things that that they're being told. And these things are contradictory with other religions. Now, Randall was right to say, no, 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 To, to be rational to believe something is different from is it true or not. And that is a fair point to make. But at the very least, what we can say is they are rational to believe, even on, you know, there is, they're they're pointing to experiential evidence to believe that the supernatural is real and that some God exists. Okay. That's, that is not in conflict. How they bear that out with their personal ideas of special revelation um, in their, in their various scriptures from different religions. Yeah, those things are going to be in conflict. The the details are going to be in conflict. But as I've said many times, when a Muslim or a, a Mormon tells me that they've had a personal or a Hindu tells me they've had a supernatural experience, a personal experience of God, I don't doubt they've had a supernatural experience. I doubt the content of that experience, whether it was truly from God. Because guess what? I believe that people who are not Christians have... Supernatural experiences, I just question whether those are from God. I don't question that, at least not strongly, I don't know for sure, but I I, I don't question that that Muhammad had a supernatural experience in the cave. I don't question that—well, actually, I do question whether Joseph Smith had a legitimate supernatural experience. Uh, he may have just been—it seems to be some evidence that he was just trying to lie to people and, and rip them off. But But various founders of religions— uh, or prophets or whatever within religions or um, parishioners of religions. I don't doubt they have supernatural experiences. I'm just saying I, so I think that the universal experience of the supernatural is real. I think that the vast majority, like 98% of the history of the world believing in God or some God or in the supernatural um, is, it does mean that it's, it does count in favor of it being rational to believe that, that there is this supernatural element and that God exists then we would just have to say okay I believe you had a supernatural experience the problem is I think it could have been a malevolent supernatural experience it may not have been a supernatural experience that comes from God I think those are relevant points to make but yeah I don't I don't just I don't just knock it out now on this principle of credulity thing what does Tom have to say in response about so so the principle of credulity Samuel's saying you need an what's my defeater? Why should I not believe this? Here's what Tom says.
4: Well, let's just grant that for the sake of argument and say it is reasonable to believe until there is a defeater. I think we do have a defeater. Like if you imagine children growing up thinking they have a magic eight ball that can tell them things about the universe and they they honestly think that this works. And then later we discover scientifically, oh, the magic eight ball doesn't work. Now, even if the children were reasonable to believe in that magic eight ball, now that we've come through the age of science and science showed, oh, no, that's not really a good method. We have a defeater. The magic eight ball doesn't work. That's science. And the same thing applies to uh, our testimony and intuitions as human beings. It's like, we have a defeater for that. We know those things don't work. We've proven scientifically those are really bad methods to try and assess the truth of the universe they work for things like maybe there's a house six blocks down or that there's a dog that the, the neighbor has or whatever, but they don't work for things like quantum mechanics or what is the correct medical treatment to cure uh, the side pains that we have. Like our intuitions and testimony do not work for those things and they don't work for the fundamental nature of reality. So we have a defeater for those. We have demonstrated that our intuition and testimony do not work when trying to discover the fundamental nature of reality. And so we have reason not to say that we should not, base our conclusions based off of those things.
3: So, uh, Tom, you're talking about the fundamental nature of reality, but you're actually, what you referenced there was nature. And so when we talk about God, we're not simply talking about nature, which is the proper object of scientific investigation.
0: Yeah, so so Randall makes a really good point here. You're again trying to force science where science doesn't belong. Let's go back to the magic eight ball. I don't believe in the magic eight ball for a second, but do I believe that science has undermined that there's some supernatural force that is delivering messages through the magic eight ball. I don't has science proven that. I mean, I guess you could do some sort of a test and see what percentage of the time each thing comes up and find out if it's more or less the same. But I, you know, I, I don't know that science has undercut the magic eight ball, even though I don't believe in the magic eight ball. What we see going on time and time again is an attempt to uh, take science and apply it where it where where it has no where, where it's outside of its field. Th- this is what I've said a lot of times. I didn't come up with this, but it's like the metal detector, and the metal detector represents the field of natural science. And you say, man, this metal detector works really well. Every time there's metal, it chirps. Um, Therefore, metal is all that exists. There's no sand and water and wind and uh, those kind of things. No, you, you just need a different detector for those things. And I think we've got philosophy, we've got history, we've got experience, as we've seen in this debate. So I just think there's an attempt to apply science where science doesn't belong. Um, now, Tom goes on to talk about the fact that what all of this gives us is that the fundamental nature of reality is probably impersonal. Let's hear what he says here.
4: Yeah. Can I, can I see it? So yeah. you're, what you're arguing is is that we can't conclude that the fundamental nature of reality is either personal or impersonal. It doesn't matter what we label those things. So my argument is actually we could actually say that because as far as we can tell, the best methodology we do have to discover, differentiate imagination from reality is science right now. And that does indicate that the most fundamental things we can discover are impersonal, vacuum states, uh, quantum mechanics. Particles, those things are all impersonal things as far as we can tell. So given the best methodology we have to differentiate imagination from reality, we can inductively conclude the fundamental nature of reality is probably impersonal.
0: Okay, now think about what Tom just said. The the deeper we go, the more we study, we find out that as we go deeper and deeper towards fundamental stuff, we find out that it's more and more impersonal. Um, therefore, the best stuff we have on hand, the best methodology we have on hand, uh, is, is indicating that it's probably impersonal. Now, imagine that you are a video game character in a video game. Like my my daughter likes to play Sims, and let's imagine that you're one of the Sims and you're investigating with a bunch of other Sims the fundamental nature of your reality. And and so you you look and you see well those you know this countertop seems to be um, a color. This color is made of pixels. I, I go down with these pixels and I seem to get these lights. And I uh, you know I'm uh, you're going fu- further and further down the fundamentals, it becomes less and less per- personal. It's more and more impersonal. Therefore, the fundamental nature of reality is impersonal. The fundamental nature of the video game is impersonal. When in fact, we know that someone created the video game, right? Someone, that someone stands outside of that reality who serves as the creator of that reality. And what The Sims would actually be right to infer is as they go deeper and deeper and they get down to the ones and zeros, what they find is there is a l- incredibly vast language system here that seems to have a meaning in it that seems to be the product of a mind, right? Which is exactly what we see in reality as we dig down deeper and deeper, we get down to the equivalent of ones and zeros, um, and we, we're starting to see that this this seems to map to a mind, and so actually we should see that the fundamental of, of uh, fundamental nature of reality seems to indicate a mind. And we did all of that earlier when we were talking about design. So I just think that fails spectacularly. Now I want to hear this amazing statement from Matt that I, I want to get to here. So let's listen to this thing about consistency.
3: Now you both said extraordinary okay. claims require ex- extraordinary evidence. It seems to me that really what you're saying is claims that are extraordinary to me require extraordinary evidence. Now, fine, relative to your data set, your background set of beliefs, you might require more evidence than another person. But again, the vast majority of people don't find these claims to be extraordinary and you haven't shown anything to show that all people are irrational. And Tom has been just, has been defending scientism. So this idea that science is somehow the key to unlock all of reality rather than simply reality that pertains to its domain of inquiry. And of course, scientism is self-defeating.
1: I actually did do the thing, maybe that you accuse me of not doing. So when I spoke earlier, I pointed out that it that the the claim extraordinary claims requires extraordinary evidence is us smuggling stuff in. And the truth is, every claim requires however much is evidence is sufficient. It's just that some claims are more consistent with the facts of the world. The claim that there is a god is not consistent with the facts of the world. And it's not made consistent with the facts of the world merely because a lot of people happen to have believed it. That's not the way uh, epistemology works.
0: So let's talk about how epistemology works. The, the fact of the matter is, he's saying he, I can't be- I couldn't believe what I was hearing. God is not consistent with the way the world is. Let's let's hold on a second. I, I want to go back. In fact, I want to pull in a different. I want I want to pull in a different statement from Matt. L- listen to this on the same subject.
1: Whether or not you are reasonable is determined by whether or not your belief and the justification for it are consistent with the facts of the world, not just what's in your head.
3: Now you both said extraordinary it, claims require. Ex-
1: when I spoke earlier, I pointed out that it that the the claim extraordinary claims requires extraordinary evidence is us smuggling stuff in. And the truth is every claim requires however much is sufficient. We're going to get there. Hold on. It's just that some claims are more consistent with the facts of the world. The claim that there is a God is not consistent with the facts of
0: the world. The claim that there is a God is not consistent with the facts of the world. And in the other clip, we heard him say that something should be considered rational when it is consistent with the facts of the world. Okay. First of all, that's that is a problem that is contradictory to what he said prior when, you know so so we've got okay so you've got coherence theory of truth and then you've got correspondence theory of truth coherence theory of truth is saying that something can be true if it's coherent we we believe something is true if it's coherent so for ex- and that would be like consistent something something is can be true considered true or rational to believe if it's consistent, which is what Matt said if it's consistent, it should be considered rational consistent with the world. Um, there are all kinds of things that are consistent with the world that that would that, that are things that we can come up with that would be consistent with the world but that aren't true right <laughs> uh, that's why you need a correspondence theory of truth. I think that Matt what Matt would like to say, or means to say is something more like correspondence theory something is true if it corresponds to reality so so things can be consistent or coherent and not be true but they're going to be true if they they're if they if they correspond to reality they are also going to be consistent and coherent but they're going to correspond to reality and i think that's really what he wants to say but he says that god is not consistent with the world now, when we do this cumulative, when I do a cumulative case approach, when I'm talking to regular ordinary people and and I'm trying to do apologetics that way, I don't do it with big arguments and evidences some of the time. Some of the time what I do is I say, all right, first of all, what I want you to do is share with me how you answer the big questions of life. Like, how did we get here? What's the meaning of life? What happens when we die? And they share those things, and I ask them to clarify if I'm confused, but I don't. I don't engage yet. Then I ask them to explain to me what they understand Christianity to be, and so they do that. And if there's anything that doesn't represent what I understand Christianity to be, I tell them where where what they're saying isn't isn't what I believe, so that we're not talking past each other. And then what I say is, I say now that we know where each other stands, share with me some things that you and I both believe are true about the way the world is, that are inconsistent with Christianity, that Christianity doesn't make sense of, that your position, your worldview does make sense of. Uh, and and you're never going to get anything. You're never, well, you're going to get things. They're going to say, well, like uh, science, science works. Well, that, uh, that's not inconsistent. That's not something that Christianity can't explain. Christianity is not inconsistent with science working. Christianity, as we saw in the debate response I did to um, with David Wood and um, and Michael Shermer, Christianity actually st- stood behind the scientific revolution. so so Christianity is not inconsistent with science well maybe uh, the problem of evil okay is now that's a that's a good thing to bring up. Is is that a fact about the world that there's evil and suffering and pain? Is that a fact about the world that we both agree on that Christianity doesn't make sense of, that that, God, that kind of God is not consistent with the world? That's something we can talk about. But of course, we have theodic- theodicies and we have explanations for that. To say that God is inconsistent with the world or God is not consistent with the world is something that Matt is going to have to bring a lot of argumentation to show that God is not consistent with the world and that would put him more in the box of arguing that god does not exist which of course he doesn't think that he has to do which loops us back to his claim that god is that it's a fiction when he just wants to claim that that he doesn't he, he lacks a belief so maybe so the only thing i can make out maybe what matt really wanted to say is not that god is inconsistent with the way the world is that there's some inconsistency there because there's not maybe he wants to make the softer claim that God doesn't correspond to reality. But if you're going to say that God doesn't correspond to reality, well, now, see, you're back in the situation of, again, needing to give me some argument that God doesn't correspond to reality. And I haven't seen that in this debate. Uh, the closest I've ever seen Matt do for that is to try and present a, an argument from divine hiddenness, and we've responded to that before. But he certainly doesn't do it in this debate. So this is a very odd thing, I think, that that Matt wants to say that God is— inconsistent with reality i want to make sure that i heard this right that you're rational to
1: believe well first of all that god
0: is not consistent let's now
1: you both said extraordinary claims require god is not consistent the claim that there is a god is not consistent with the facts of the world and it's not made the claim that there is a god is not
0: consistent with the facts of the world of course it is what's the inconsistency Remember, to say, oh, you Christians don't have any evidence. Well, of course we think we do, but to say you don't have any evidence doesn't mean that God is not consistent with the facts of the world. You would really need to bring
1: some argument that we just didn't get here, and then we find out again, whether or not you are reasonable is determined by whether or not your belief and the justification for it are consistent with the facts of the world, not just what's in your head.
0: And again, there we hear that something is rational, rational to be believed when it's consistent with the world and the justification for it is consistent with the world. There are all kinds of things that are consistent with the world that are not true. So are you going to then agree with Rouser that, yeah, there are some things that are not true that you are rational to believe? That doesn't seem to be like what we heard. And maybe I'm missing something. All right. um, Let's 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 listen to one last clip. This has to do with pastafarianism, the idea that people worship a flying spaghetti monster. I thought this was a fun clip to end on.
4: So 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 just to clarify, if the pastafarianism was a real religion that people genuinely believed and they brought up their kids believing in pastafarianism, then it would be rational for the children to believe in this flying spaghetti monster based on it could
3: be. It could be until they had defeaters for it. Yeah. Just like it could be reasonable for a child to be raised to believe something as extraordinary as naturalism until there's some given some good defeaters for it. Now, there's kind of a, a smile Tom has here. And again, I think that smile belies the sense uh, that you're projecting your particular plausibility framework upon everybody else and thinking, well, if people who don't believe as I do or interpret the world as I do are just kind of silly. And I think that's a little bit of a provincial perspective, to be honest.
0: Definitely a provincial perspective. The vast majority of the world, the vast majority of the history, the history of the world does not think it's silly to entertain the idea that God exists. Um. Yeah, if someone was raised to believe that, we we shouldn't be surprised they would believe that. Um, and given the data set that they have, maybe that is a rational conclusion. Doesn't mean it's true. Obviously, pastafarianism, the flying spaghetti monster, is not true, right? But but this this. But I loved how he said. I loved Rouser here, where he's like, just like someone could you know come to believe something as unlikely as naturalism right you do realize that and this comes back to it the smirk that that he said he detected this indicates to me that there is a bias here and i loved how um oh by the way i meant to play a clip of it and i didn't grab the clip but uh in a recent video from inspiring philosophy michael jones um he showed that the data now shows that this idea that theists are just guilty of um, this this looking for patterns and design uh, is, has been done away with. There may be some new age people, but not not theists. That just doesn't seem to work. Uh, I hope I'm getting that right. And that did come up a few times in this debate. Um, but but listen, this this mockery, this this laughter at it, like it's it's just silly. Um, th- this shows a bias, and as we saw, atheists are no are not uh, uh, exempt from bias. In fact they may be more biased than other people especially if they think they're smarter than everybody else because they can have that biased blind spot um but they don't they don't think that they're biased they think that they think they're less biased than everybody else just like the average person thinks that he's less biased than the average person um so you know th- th- but this whole thing of well, I, like you said, you just think you just think it's silly to believe. Well, if you just think it's silly to believe, then why are we doing this whole rigmarole of evidence and when you're rational to believe? If you just think it's silly, well, then just don't believe. If you think if you, if they, if you don't want to believe, you don't have to believe. But you're wrong that it's not that someone's not that someone is not rational to believe. And the the standards that we've been given in this debate for when it's rational to believe something from the other side are shocking and unlivable. And, and I think the only reason they get there is, I don't know that this is intentional, but is to exclude the supernatural and theism as a possibility. So um, that brings us to the end. By the way, if you've made it to the end, really appreciate you. <laughs> we're, trying to, uh, we're trying to respond to atheism on the internet because we love atheists. By the way, Tom, Matt, if you've heard this and you think I've unfairly characterized you, I'm sorry, that was not my intent. If that ever happens, it is unintentional. And also, if you think I've been um, unkind to you or uh, uh, unfair to you, that is not what I want to do. I'm never trying to attack or uh, the person or make the person um, feel embarrassed. That's not what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to attack the ideas. And in most cases, the ideas did not originate with the people here presenting them. They originated with someone else. And there have been times in the past where I have expounded things that I, looking back, um, I think those ideas are wrong and silly and perhaps um, i will in the future look back on some of the things i believe now and think that they're wrong or silly but as for the belief in god i am happy to say i believe that um as randall and samuel have presented i am uh, on good rational grounds for believing in the christian god and i think we have incredible arguments to believe that the christian god exists so um to respond to matt i think we have those good reasons and to respond to tom Um, I I think you're flat wrong to think that there is no evidence for God's existence or even for the Christian God's existence. I've enjoyed this time we've had together. Um, I I want you to know there's a podcast version of this that you can get. And also, uh, you can visit us at TrinityRadio.org. You can get the podcast there. You can get stuff there. I've written several books you can get there. Also, we have the Patreon. We we listen. We we give away a lot of stuff to the patrons that we don't give to anybody else. Um, ebook copies of several of my books, uh, several full seminary courses with PowerPoint uh, for free. I mean, they're not really for free. If you're a patron, you're giving us something, but um but you know that they're there for you it would cost a lot of money if you bought all those things independently or signed up for a program i would say this if you'd like to study christian apologetics and earn a degree you can come to trinity college of the bible and theological seminary at trinitysem.edu i'd love to see you in the classroom in the virtual classroom online you can do it from home wherever you live it's affordable and maybe you don't even want to be a ministry professional that's perfectly fine we've got a lot of people who want to be apologists Um, who just want to go further and deeper in their walk with the Lord, and you can get that there. I've had fun with you, and I look forward to seeing you next time on Trinity Radio.